the words of uh, the second law, the second Torah, Deuteronomy, chapter 15, verses 1 through 18. At the end of every seven years, you must cancel debts. And this is how it is to be done. Every creditor shall cancel any loan they have made to a fellow Israelite. They shall not require payment from anyone among their own people because the Lord's time for canceling debts has been proclaimed. You may require payment from a foreigner, but you must cancel any debt your fellow Israelite owes you. However, there need, need, there, there need be no poor people among you. For in the land the Lord your God is giving you to possess as your inheritance, he will richly bless you. If you only fully obey the Lord your God and are careful to follow all these commands I am giving you today. For the Lord your God will bless you as he has promised. And you will lend to many nations, but will borrow from none. You will rule over many nations, but none will rule over you. If anyone is poor among your fellow Israelites in any of the towns of the land that the Lord your God is giving you, do not be hard-hearted or tight-fisted towards them. Rather, be open-handed and freely lend whatever they need. Be careful not to harbor this wicked thought. The seventh year, the year for canceling debts, is near so that you do not show ill will toward the needy among your fellow Israelites and give them nothing. They may then appeal to the Lord against you and you will be found guilty of sin. Give generously to them and do so without a grudging heart. Because then, then because of this, the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in everything you've put your hand to. There will always be poor people in the land. Therefore I command you to be open-handed toward your fellow Israelites who are poor and needy in the land. If any of your people, Hebrew men or women, sell themselves to you and, you, and serve you for six years, in the seventh year you must let them go free. And when you release them, do not send them away empty-handed. Supply them liberally from your flock, your threshing floor, and your wine press. Give to them as the Lord your God has blessed you. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you. That is why I give you this command today. But if your servant says to you, I do not want to leave you because he loves you and your family and is well off with you, then take an awl and push it through his ear, earlobe into the door and he will become your servant for life. Do the same for your female servant. Do not consider it a hardship to set your servant free because their servant to you these six years has been worth twice as much as a hired hand. And the Lord your God will bless you in everything you do. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We think about spirituality. We think about what it means to be a person in relationship to God. And we've framed that in these weeks as uh, an effort of prayer and work. We get the prayer part. We understand that prayer comes with spirituality. 
regardless of one's religious perspective, communicating with the divine seems to fit the parameters of a spiritual life, of whatever spirituality that is. Prayer makes sense. It's that work part. How does, how does our economic life intersect with that prayer? How does our, how does our wallet, our pocketbook, connect with our prayer book and our scriptures? Well, we've said they do, that, that a passionate spirituality grows out of a commitment to prayer and work. Not prayer or work. Not prayer then work. We've been deliberate about the conjunction. We've talked about a spirituality of the conjunction. That it's prayer and work. And that, in fact, these two behaviors, prayer and work, are inextricably linked together in the biblical text. That when God calls us to prayer, He calls us to work. And when He calls us to work, He calls us to prayer. That, that these behaviors are, are linked, are joined, conjoined, and they form us into a whole person. Every society creates an economy. The, the word economy comes from the Greek word oikos, meaning house. Economics is, how is your household organized? To, to organize a household is to have an economy. Every society has an economy. Every society forms a roadmap about how they will collect assets, how they will how they will exchange value, how they will account for that value, and how they will store that value, to use Greg's paradigm, which I thought was excellent, Greg. In our society, we've seen a subtle but serious change over the decades. 1937, the president of General Electric spoke to a class at Harvard Business School where he talked about the importance of the corporation to be philanthropic. That part of what corporate profits existed for was to make sure everyone had opportunity. To ensure that everyone had opportunity. This is the president of a major corporation speaking to the business school that it's the heart at the heart of American capitalism. And he says the purpose of the corporation is to make profit so that everyone has opportunity. 1937. Fast forward 50 years to Gordon Gekko's speech in Wall Street. Greed is good. That the acquisition and accumulation of Monetary value for myself is the purpose in and of itself. It's a pretty significant change in a half century. And we can argue which one is right and which one isn't. But we have to admit 
that the service of self has become society's wealth. Good words. But is that what the Scriptures call us to? Deuteronomy is a strange book. It is the second telling of the law. Moses proclaims the law in Exodus that he receives from God on Mount Sinai in the tablets that he breaks and then goes back up and has to write them himself. And and now Israel has wandered in the wilderness for a generation. That group at Sinai, except for Moses, has, and, and for Joshua and Caleb, has, has passed into history. And now they're ready to step into this new homeland that they've been promised. And it will be fraught with peril. It will not be easy. And there are lots of parts of Deuteronomy that we read and go, huh? Why why is that an important rule? But we come to Deuteronomy 15 and we immediately get it. Uh, This is... This is about economics. This hits home in our culture. This rings all of the bells and raises all of the red flags for us. Every time I read this passage, I feel the hackles go up because, boy, this is not market capitalism. This, is, this begins with, at the end of every seven years, you must cancel debts. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. The folks at my mortgage company know about this by any chance. Our economy simply does not work on this basis. And we find ourselves in the instant tension of, what do we do about this? How, how should we, as followers of Jesus, live? Do we take the stance of, that's law, we live in grace. That'll be 32% interest, please. (laughs) Do we say, well, there are ways around this. And and there are embedded in this text ways, ways to work at this. But the principle, you must cancel debts at the end of seven years. Every seven years. Is, I mean... A radical economic pathway are the only three words I can think of to describe it. These are the generally accepted accounting principles of the Hebrew people. Debts don't last. They get forgiven. And so the jubilee economy that is unpacked throughout Deuteronomy begins with this command to cancel debts, to let it go after seven years, to not pursue repayment, to absolve the debtor. For the sole purpose of ensuring that there is no poverty in your society. It's not about being a wise and good lender of money. It's not about being 
so wealthy you can afford to cancel a few debts here and there. It's about ensuring no one is poor. Now later in the passage, the the lawmakers of Israel will confess that, yeah, there's going to be poor. But our, our people, our, our, our life together, the people of God aspire to have no poor among us. And then the, the directives in verses 7 through 11 unpack the way this is to be done. For lenders not to be hard-hearted or tight-fisted, but open-handed and free in their lending. To not harbor the wicked thought, oh, this is, this is year five, and I've only got 24 months to get this money back, so I don't think I'm going to loan it to you. It's, it's an amazing set of rules. It's an impossible set of rules in our economy. Our, our economy, if we adopted Deuter- Deuteronomy's principles, our economy would collapse. It, it, it simply wouldn't work. So what do we do? Well, it gets even better in verses 12 to 18. Because now there are legal limits in, among the people of God to, to labor and to what, uh, what you can expect of the labor that you hire or the labor that uh, comes into your household and, and works for you as a servant. There are legal limits to that. And, and when those people go their way, when they have served their term of indentured servitude and leave, you don't just cut them loose. You, you provide for them startup capital so that they can launch their own ventures. Wow. Again, I, our economy doesn't work that way. And we can have the debate whether it should or shouldn't. That's not the point this morning. The, the point is that this passage in Deuteronomy calls us to think through what we're about as people who pray and work. That, that, that connecting of those two. We pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. And we work on the basis of greed is good. Might be a little disconnect there. I wonder. The jubilee of canceled debt and the jubilee of emancipated labor invite us to think thoroughly about what we value as people who work and how our prayers impact our work and how our work impacts our prayer. The Bible doesn't condemn wealth, nor does it promise that hard work is the path to glory. 
We sit here this Sunday, October 29th, 2017, and acknowledge it as the Sunday where we celebrate the 500th anniversary of the Great Reformation in Europe. Or, from another perspective, the Great Fracturing of Christendom in Europe. The Protestant Reformation, and and one of the the, the unassailable truths that grew out of the Protestant Reformation is God helps those who help themselves. The Protestant work ethic. If you work hard, if you play by the rules, you will get ahead. Uh, hardest working people I know are African women in villages who subsist on a dollar a day. Not so sure they've gotten ahead because we've cooked the books and change the rules. The Bible doesn't condemn wealth. But the Bible doesn't promise hard work is the path to glory. The Bible simply asks us with wealth, and I say us because on planet Earth, we are the top 2%. Every one of us in this room has more money at our disposal than a Bangladeshi village woman. We're in the top 2%. Every one of us in this room. The Bible asks us with wealth to live as generous people. And so Deuteronomy unpacks for us a passionate spirituality of work, a way to create a just society a social policy that's committed to the minimization of debt's power. Scriptures recognize that debt is a trap and it ensnares us and it makes us slave to it. And so the Scriptures over and over again in multiple ways call us to avoid debt. It's a social policy in Deuteronomy that's primarily committed to the end of poverty, not just the extension of charity. It's not, it's, not about how, it's not about how generous we are. That's not the measurement. The measurement is how much poverty has been eliminated. That's, that's what we measure. Have we really seen a reduction in poverty? The Millennial Development Goals of 2015 that were proclaimed by that terrible socialist organization called the United Nations 20 years ago, has seen a genuine reduction in global poverty. And yet we're not quite sure what to do with that going forward. There are, there are new targets for 2030. And we live in a country that's pretty ambivalent about what to do about that. What would it mean for us to change our policies so that poverty at home and around the world is reduced, if not eliminated? Deuteronomy also teaches us about a social policy that encourages entrepreneurial startup and encourages the exchange of investment capital. Working for the man for the rest of your life isn't Deuteronomy's vision. Deuteronomy makes allowance for it, but it says really the goal is get a stake, 
get a start. 40 acres and a mule. It's the promise of those with, with the capacity to be generous, eagerly sharing wealth so that others can enter into the economy. It's a social policy more concerned with relationships and less concerned with gaming the system. Yeah, you loan in the sixth year because it's about the relationship, not about, oh, you know, if I loan this, I'm going to lose the money. It's, no, nah, my relationship with you is more important than my money. That's a new thought. Deuteronomy proclaims a social policy that rejects the establishment of a permanent underclass. It says we are all in this together and we all take care of one another. So what does that mean for us? What does that mean for the way we function and the way we live? You've probably seen this Venn diagram before in some way. You know you're working on the right thing when you love it, you're great at it, you're paid for it, and the world needs it. And you find that sweet spot. That's the, that's the, that's it. That's my purpose in life. When I love doing it, and I'm great at it, and the world needs it, and I'm paid for it, my passion and mission and profession and vocation all come together, and voila, there it is. And we can hope for that. And we can work towards that. But I think what God's labor policy that he unpacks for us in Deuteronomy 15 teaches us is that we're called to be people of justice, to discover that the purpose of our work is always about increasing justice in society. Whatever it is we do is about increasing justice. The metric we use to establish, am I doing the right things? Not just doing things right. Am I doing the right things? Has justice increased because I've gotten up this morning? Now that's a, that's a tough measure, but I think it's a healthy one for us to ask. Is the world a more just place because I've put in my eight hours? Hope is the other part of God's labor policy, realizing the ways in which our work might truly eliminate poverty. Have I, have I figured out ways in my work to reduce, to reduce poverty in the world? Now that doesn't mean the only legitimate jobs in the world are economic development jobs and, and, and social workers and poverty-reducing economic uh, public policy figures. It means making sure everybody has access to the tip jar. It, it means, means making sure you leave a good tip. Because in our society, we don't pay some workers what they're worth on an hourly basis. We, we pay them less than that. And then we assume our generosity will make up for it. So be generous. We realize that there are ways in which our work might truly begin to eliminate poverty. And then thirdly, stewardship. Working in such a way that neither money nor debt control our lives. 
We live in an economy that relies on credit, that depends on debt. To, to buy a house is to become indebted for a generation in our society. And, and we do it without blinking an eye. We, we do it willingly. We sign our name a couple of thousand times in the presence of a notary with thanksgiving that we now have a piece of the American dream. And rightly so. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not here this morning saying the Bible bans home ownership or the Bible bans capitalism or the Bible bans getting wealthy. I'm not saying that. But I'm saying does our work contribute to justice, hope, and stewardship? Those are the measurements. The, that's the accounting. God could care less whether you finish the fiscal year profitable or not. God cares whether you've worked for justice, worked for hope, worked for stewardship. Those are the measurements. That's what Deuteronomy is trying to say. That's what God's labor policy means for us. So this morning, some questions. And, and I want to note that one institution that works at this in a wonderful way is Mennonite Central Committee Bangladesh. Uh, separate from Mennonite Central Committee US or Mennonite Central Committee Canada, Mennonite Central Committee Bangladesh, which has both uh, national Bangladeshi workers, like our friend James Kiskew, and, and also expatriates from Canada and the U.S. working for them. MCC Bangladesh works hard at these principles. There's a business that takes uh, cooperative-made handcrafts from across the country and sells them. It's a 10,000 villages kind of model where many of us are acquainted with 10,000 villages. If you're not, go home and Google it. But uh, a few years ago, uh, they were barely breaking even. In fact, they were losing money. And along comes a Bangladeshi accountant who gets named CEO of this program. And it begins to take off. And now it employs hundreds of people. <coughs> Women who make beautiful handcrafts beautiful hand-spin twine that's, that's as tough as you'll ever find out of, out of native jute, dyes it in beautiful colors and sells it in huge balls. Beautiful artwork. Beautiful crafts. Cooperatives across the country that, that make this art. Savvy local marketing and sales to make it profitable. Not just for export to Westerners who have disposable income, but for Bangladeshi people. MCC Bangladesh, among that program, among others, does amazing work at building justice, hope, and stewardship through its economics. And so this morning, some questions for us. 
How are we imagining our work as purposefully seeking justice, hope, and stewardship? Can we imagine our work doing that? And if so, how? How are we laboring to cancel the power of debt in our personal lives and around the world? Can we imagine a world without poverty? What would that look like? What would it look like for no one in our culture, no one in the world, to be at the bottom of crushing debt? Can we at least imagine a world where our investment of time and treasure seeks to eliminate poverty? How might we at Mad Street become more intentional in actively connecting our stewardship to entrepreneurship? How do we give of our vineyards and our wine presses and our fields so that others can begin to be engaged in the economy? One more thing. That great theologian Stephen Colbert who said, if this is going to be a Christian nation that doesn't help the poor, either we have to pretend that Jesus was just as selfish as we are or we've got to acknowledge that he commanded us to love the poor and serve the needy without condition and then just admit we don't want to do it. God's labor policy isn't about guilting 21st century capitalists. It isn't about saying to us, oh, you made profit, shame on you. That is not God's intent, not my intent this morning either. And if you've heard it that way, I apologize. That was not my goal. My goal was to say, God calls us to take the wealth he has placed in our hands and become generous people. to measure our financial success not by the amount of stuff we have, but by the generosity we offer. And I would say to you this morning, this is a generous congregation. I would say to us, we are not far from the kingdom on this one. Do not go home this morning saying, oh, the pastor guilted me, because that's not what I'm doing. I'm saying we're on our way on this journey. May we continue to learn and grow to be a people of generosity that cancels the crushing power of debt, that eliminates the injustice of poverty, that works with everyone with the business sector, with the labor sector, with the government sector, with with all the spheres of influence. May we be a people of God who work in those spheres of influence to bring about justice and hope and stewardship. That's God's labor policy. Let's take a minute. What do you think?